So many years ago, probably 16, 17 years ago, my oldest daughter was about four. My next daughter, my second daughter, Bella, she was about two. And Bella ended up cutting her hand. And so my older daughter, four-ish, she snapped into mom mode. Like, I'm gonna care for you. I am gonna nurse you back to health. So she took Bella and they went to the bathroom and they're looking for like Neosporin. She couldn't find it. But being a four-year-old, she knew any kind of semi-solid ointment will work. So she grabbed Tartar Control Crest with whitening crystals and just smeared it with it, right? Then she began to look for Band-Aids. Band-Aids have been known to save the lives of millions of children every single year. She couldn't find Band-Aids, but she was not going to be deterred. So she went to the craft drawer, pulled out her horse stickers, and pasted about five of them on Bella's hand. Job well done. Now, I'd love to say that they lived happily ever after, but it got infected and gangrene, and we had to amputate part of Bella's hands. I'm kidding, of course. Sometimes we're like that. We're like four-year-olds. We see a problem. We know it's a problem. But then we go to the wrong solutions. So we are right now in the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark. And there's a group of people that have been going to toothpaste and stickers. And so Jesus now is going to just rip this whole thing off. And it's really part two of last week where we began this talking about with the washing of hands and what that meant. And I'll try to recap as we go through this story, but it's Jesus moving people forward. Toothpaste and stickers, they're not gonna do it. It's deeper, it's worse than you imagined, but the solution is better than you imagined. All right, so let's jump in. We're in the Gospel of Mark, picking it up in verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. Praise God, we can eat bacon. Man. <laughs> greatest verse in the Bible. <laughs> and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. I've titled this little section here, Soap or Surgery. 
Because the previous conversation that Jesus had with the Pharisees was about washing hands. They used soap. So is it soap that's gonna help us or surgery? And what Jesus says is this, dirt, it can make you sick, but it can't make you sin. That your outward stuff, your ideas, they're not helping you. And so in verse 14, Jesus says something that he hasn't said in Mark yet. He says, hear me, all of you, and understand. It's Jesus for the first time saying, this is as important as it gets. If you miss this, you miss everything. Hear me, understand that sin is an inside job. And all the tools that the Pharisees have about outward stuff, praying in public, reading in public, washing their hands, wearing these kinds of clothes, eating these kinds of foods, all those things are not going to help. Because here's the problem. It's verse 15. He says, it's not what's outside a person that's gonna defile him, but it was, it comes, it's what comes out of that person that defiles them. So Jesus here is really honest. He says to all of us, you are defiled. Jesus does not say, hey, you guys are good. You're trying your best. You're okay. He doesn't say, hey, God just loves you just as you are. You're sweet and kind and you're just made that way. Jesus does not say that. He says, you're all defiled. Everyone in here, everyone in a story, everyone he's talking to, you are defiled. Jesus is honest. We're defiled. Don't we already know that? If we're honest with ourselves, don't we already know that? Don't you feel that things just aren't quite right? That people aren't just all good? Like no matter what side of the aisle you stand on politically, if you were to kind of say something's wrong, you're gonna have an idea of what's wrong, right? One side's gonna say, well, the wrongness in our world right now is these lazy, good-for-nothing freeloaders. They're defiled. The other side's gonna say, no, what's wrong in our world right now is this system that's set up that makes them fail. But both sides are saying there's something wrong. Neither side is saying, ah, oh, it's all great and rosy and wonderful. No one's saying that. If I went to any group in the world and I asked them, hey, tell me what's wrong in the world. They're gonna give me a list, right? Everyone has their list of what's wrong. Socialism, that's what's wrong in the world. Capitalism, that's what's wrong in the world. Government, that's what's wrong in the world. Most everyone agrees on that one. <laughs> Education, that's what's wrong. Housing, that's what's wrong. Pollution, that's what's wrong. Social media, that's what's wrong. Hollywood, that's what's wrong. Movies, that's right. We're all gonna have our list. No one in their right mind is saying everything is rosy and beautiful. And Jesus is saying the same thing. And he's saying, he's saying, you all know it. There's a problem. You're defiled. And you know what? You can actually use Christianity to try to scrub up like soap. Do you know that? That some people use Christianity to try to make themselves feel better. Like, hey, I'm clean, I'm good. So I have this quote from C.H. Spurgeon, this preacher from 170 years ago. And he wrote a book to aspiring ministers. And he said, he has this quote in there. It's so good. He says this, don't preach the gospel in order to save your soul. That sometimes people get into positions like I'm in because they're trying to save their own soul. Like, God, look at how good I am. I preached on Sunday. I studied your word. I washed my hands. I did these things. Spurgeon said, don't do that because you can use Christianity like soap. You can use it. 
Like your good is outweighing the bad. Like God's, oh, wow, okay. Cancel culture, it's the same thing. Like everyone knows there's defiling in someone. And so it's like finding out the defilement and saying, well, we cancel you because you're defiled. Okay, so is everybody. Everyone ends up canceled in a canceled culture. So Jesus, Jesus is like, hey, I agree, but it's worse than you imagined. Soap's not gonna take care of it, right? Look at verses 21 and 22. He just lists these things. And when you look at this list, no one can force you from the outside to do these things. Evil thoughts. Can anyone force you to think evil thoughts? Mm -mm. Now, people may have hurt you. People may have defiled you. People may have put garbage in there, but it's your own decision to entertain that or to take the trash out. No one can force you to do it. No one can force you to be envious. No one can force you to be sexually immoral. No one can force you to steal, right? None of these things. No one can force you to murder. Not like, well, he deserved it, man. Right? Well, I'm sexually immoral because they dress like that. No, this comes from within you, that you are defiled. So what's the solution? Remember the backdrop to this story were the Pharisees who were washing their hands. They thought, if I could just wash my hands better, if I could just do that, that would, be, that would make it. Now, why were the Pharisees washing their hands? Well, if you're a Bible student, you read the Bible, there's one group that's commanded to wash their hands. It was the priests. And the priests were commanded to wash their hands before they came into God's presence. Now, why would God want that? Yeah, it was, this matters. You're defiled, and for you to be defiled, you have to understand how massive it is for you to come into my presence. You can't just waltz into my presence, because this is really important. We already know stuff like that. If you are going out on your first date, do you show up in your grungy work clothes? Not if you want a second date. Right? You go home, you take a shower, you put on your best clothes, you put on some cologne, you brush your teeth, you floss your teeth, you mouthwash, you put some double mint breath, uh, gum in, right? Because that really matters. Bad breath matters. You know all that. We already know this, that, listen, this is important. And because it's important, I'm going to prepare myself. Presence matters. If we were to go to church 70 years ago, what would all the men in church be wearing 70 years ago? A suit. Now, why did you do that? Because it was, hey, this matters. So I'm doing something to signify that this matters. I remember early on at Edgewater, uh, this old guy came up to me. He's like, man, I really like the church here. I really like what you do. And I go, well, why? And I thought he was gonna say, because your sermons are so brilliant. <laughs> he did not. He goes, because you iron your shirt. I'm like, wow, okay, that's easy. Okay, I did not tell him that I only ironed the front, not the back. That I'm actually a Pharisee, just what you see that matters. I'm like, I don't care about the back, no one sees it. I did not tell him that. <laughs> it's still true to this day. If I'm wearing a suit, the only part that is ironed is this little V right here, and that's it. I never take off my coat, because then you'll see I'm a Pharisee. I, he was saying it, I, I'm glad that it matters to you. So we already have like hints of this. Here's the problem. The Pharisees were like, well, let's expand that to all the time. If God likes 
priests to wash their hands one time when they come into his presence, then we should wash our hands all the time. They kept expanding, 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 thinking that what they did made God love them more. That's what they thought. And we still have churches like that today. Do you know that? Believing that certain things that you do makes God love you more, that if you wear these kind of clothes or if you only eat these kinds of food, God loves you more. Have you met people like that? That the vegetarian diet somehow makes you closer to God. What does Jesus say about food in this text? Food has no spiritual value. That's what he's saying. Now it has a health value, absolutely. We all know that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying by eating or not eating food, that does not make you closer to God. And people, they get hung up on the vegetarian diet saying somehow it makes you closer to God. This is what I tell them. I say, if you want to be closer to God, eat two pounds of bacon and a bag of M&Ms and a six pack of Red Bulls, you will be with him in no time. That's how you get closer to God. Because that doesn't matter. Jesus makes it real clear here. Real clear. Because the problem is worse than you imagined. It's verses 19 and 21. It's a heart issue. It's not that we sin. It's that we are sinners. It's not that we screwed up. It's that we are screwed up. That's what Jesus is saying. That the problem is much worse than you imagine. And washing your hands is not going to deal with it. And we always want soap. Man, if Matt would just preach a better sermon, then I'd be fixed. If I could just watch those DVDs, then I'd be fixed. If I could just figure out a new technique, then I'd be fixed. We're always looking for soap. And Jesus just says, that's not going to help you because the issue is not outside. The issue is inside of you. It's your heart. And it's spewing out all this garbage all the time. And if it's spewing out all this garbage all the time, then you can filter it a little bit and you can discipline it a little bit, but the source is bad. It's like this. Do you know that you can filter sewage and drink it? You can, it's called toilet to tap. I actually have a picture of the website that tells you how to do it. Yeah, that's pretty cool, huh? It's actually how we get the water for our pour over coffee, if you're wondering. <laughs> Dutch Bros is going to be packed next Sunday. Yeah, I don't know, man. I think he was joking, but I'm just not sure. I'm not risking it. You can do that, no doubt. That takes a lot of work. That's stinky and gross. You can do it, and people do that all the time to their hearts. They try to filter it. They try to filter it. They try to, and it's constant discipline. It's constant help. And Jesus is like, y y good luck with that. What's better? Change the source. You got to change the source. Yeah, deal with what is producing all the garbage, all the junk. That's what you have to do. So Jesus is like, all this outward stuff, all this soap is not going to deal with it. You have to deal with the heart. That it's not adultery that's the problem. It's lust coming from your heart. It's not murder that's the problem. It's anger that's coming from your heart. And it's gonna, yeah, you can gritted teeth, kind of hold it down, but it's gonna constantly be coming out. So the good news this is why Jesus is saying, pay attention. The good news is Jesus did not come to make you and me a little better. Jesus came to make you and me brand new. That's the good news. I came to change your source. 
So what's the solution, Matt? Mark just kind of leaves it here and then moves on to stories. He, he doesn't give us a solution. Oh, he does. This is the brilliance of Mark. Mark embeds his theology in stories. So you're supposed to read Mark. He doesn't do these long teachings of Jesus. He uses stories to tell you, here's the solution. And I love that because I'll often forget theology, but I remember the stories. And so he gives us two stories as a backdrop to that story of the Pharisees who are failing. He gives us two stories that tell you and I, here's how you actually approach God. Here's how you approach me. And they are amazing. And the first one comes from the most unlikely source. You ever got wisdom from the most unlikely source? Like from your husband or your wife? You're like, wow, I didn't know they had that. Okay, think about the most unlikely source. Multiply it by a thousand for this time and this culture. And that's where the wisdom comes from. Check this out. Verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He leaves Israel. He's going to a foreign land. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know and he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit defiled from the inside heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in a bed and the demon gone. I title this, Ode or a Bonus. Ode or Bonus. Do we earn it by hand washing or is it a gift? The backdrop to all this is that story we did last Sunday of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the ultimate insiders. They had the temple, they had the Torah, they had the prophets, they had the promised land, they dressed right, they ate right, they looked right, they, they were ultimate insiders. When they come to Jesus, these insiders do, and they ask Jesus about the washing of hands. And Jesus responds in the strongest rebuke in Mark. He says, you mom and dad dishonoring, commandment breaking, empty worshiping hypocrites. Strongest rebuke, like takes them out. Why did he respond that way? Because the Pharisees believed by their hand washings that now God owed them something. God, you owe me it. I've done what I'm supposed to do. Now give me the goods. 
That's why. And Jesus goes unhinged on them. And we get the rest of this. People still have that idea in their head. So when I meet somebody at Edgewater for the first time and I don't know where they land theologically, I'll ask them two questions. And based on their answer to these two questions, I can figure out where they land theologically. The first question is, does God love you? The second question is, if he does, why? Your answer to those two questions tell me where you're at. And I've had all kinds of answers. Yeah, God loves me. Okay, why? Because I'm a good husband. Because I'm a good person. Because I donated a kidney. My favorite was this. Yeah, God loves me because I put 100 bucks in the offering basket. I'm like, well, that doesn't make God love you. I love you, thank you. God doesn't. It's all hand-washing. It's all God owes me something because I did this or I did not do that. That's it. So the Pharisees believe that. God owes me. So God, you better drop the goods to me because I've done it. Drop it. Now, there are two giant ways to miss Jesus. One is arrogance, which the Pharisees had. Arrogance that you've done everything right and God owes you it. And I've heard people say this before. They'll say this. They'll say, man, I don't know why this happened to me. But when I get up there, God's got some explaining to do. Whoopee! <laughs> I don't think so. You're shaking your fist at God. Good luck with that. You believe because of something you've done, hand washings or whatever you want to call it, that now God owes you and he's got some explaining to do. You'll miss him. That's what the Pharisees did with arrogance. But the second way you'll miss Jesus is this. It's the flip side of that. It's the opposite of it. It's being so self-absorbed in your own sin. It's, I'm so terrible. I can never darken the gates of a church. I can, you're right, where you just are so focused on your own brokenness, your own defiling, that then you somehow minimize the very death of God, the son on the cross for you. And you'll miss him the same way. They're flip sides of the same kind of coin. And you're not supposed to miss that. Because this woman, woman is essentially called a dog. And what do you find out about the dog in our parable? The dog eats at the t table of the master. How amazing is that? Now, I know in America, we, we have this love affair with dogs. I get it, right? We love our dogs. Um, but has your dog ever done something that, that has embarrassed you? Like pooped in the wrong spot? I'm sorry. Smell the dog in the wrong spot? I'm sorry. Smell the human in the wrong spot. I'm really sorry, right? I know we love them. It's been said this, that the average dog in America has better, better health care than rich kids in Africa. If that doesn't cause every American's heart to just stop for a second, be like, hmm, then be careful, right? So yeah, we love our dogs, no doubt about it. However, this is not that kind of dog. This is not a Labradoodle that you're like, oh, I love my Labradoodle. This is 2,000 years ago. So if you've ever been to a third world country, have you seen the dogs in a third world country? They're not Labradoodles. They're nasty, aren't they? You wouldn't touch them. You wouldn't get close to them. You'd be afraid of getting the disease. If you did get close to them, they'd probably bite you, right? That's a dog in a third world country. That's the dogs 2,000 years ago. And what is Jesus saying? Even those varmints defiled can eat at the master's table. Never ever 
ever think you are too sinful for the cross of Jesus Christ. You do a disservice to what he did on the cross, that God the Son was bled out for you. It's prideful in the opposite way. Your sin's not greater than that. Give me a break. Right, so these guys are missing it. They're both pride. Here's what we're supposed to learn from the wrong person. She's not an insider, she's an outsider. She's an outsider because she is a Gentile, but more than that, she is a Syrophoenician. She's a descendant of the Canaanites, the absolute enemies of Israel. She's a foreigner. She doesn't live in the promised land. And she is a woman. She is triple marginalized outsider. And she is the first person in Mark to understand a parable of Jesus. Like the disciples never get it. Jesus always has to explain them to his parable, to his disciples. This woman gets it. She understands. She gets, hey, I get I'm an outsider. I'm not a covenant child. I'm not an Israelite. I get that I'm a Gentile, but even the Gentiles get something. Even the Gentiles get something. And here's what she does. Three simple things. Number one, she knows the source. She knows crumbs from your table are better than the feasts of the idols. Because I'll guarantee you, this woman had gone to every temple, every idol, ever, every small G God trying to get help for her defiled daughter and found nothing, 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 nothing. And she finally comes to Jesus and says, even a crumb from your table is better than the feasts of this world. I just need a crumb. That's what the psalmist would say in Psalm 8410. One day in your court is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorman, a person that opens and closes the door than to dwell in the tents of the wicked than to be in Elon Musk's mansion. I'd rather be a doorman in your house because crumbs from your table are better than the feasts of this world. You are the source. Secondly, she struggles. She enters into this parable of Jesus. She plays right into it. She understands it and then she plays into it. She pushes back against Jesus in a way, right? She didn't just leave. She wrestles with him, struggles with him. It's okay. It's okay to wrestle. Do you know that? Read Abraham in Acts, chapter, or Acts in Genesis 18, right? He wrestles with Yahweh back and forth, back and forth, 50, 40, 30. I know I'm asking again, 10, right? He just keeps doing it. We're supposed to do that. Read the entire book of Job. What is that? It's a wrestling match, theological, back and forth. Read the Psalms. How many of the Psalms begin with something like, why, God, why is this happening, right? It's wrestling. It's entering in. It's, that's good. It's like Jacob when he wrestles with God the Son before the incarnation. And what does he say? He grabs a hold of him, and what does he say? I won't let you go until you bless me. That's what this woman is doing. She's, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me, until the defilement of my daughter is gone, right? I love that. And then thirdly, it's a bonus. This is not owed, it's a bonus. She does not come to Jesus and say, hey Jesus, I washed my hands, I made an offering, I donated a kidney, so now because of my goodness, heal my daughter. She doesn't do that at all. 
She does not come based on her goodness. She says, I'm a dog. I don't deserve anything. I just want a crumb because you are good. She comes knowing this is a bonus. This is a gift. I'm coming wanting a gift from you. I don't deserve it. I know I'm an outsider. Nothing have I done that deserves this. And Jesus' response is is brilliant. For this statement, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Oh, that we'd learn never to demand something from God based on our own stuff. That we'd always come to him, not with arrogance like the Pharisees, not with self-absorbed, I'm so defiled. We're supposed to come to God like kids, like his sons and daughters. If you have kids, you know this, your kids will unabashedly ask you for anything, right? Like one of my sons a couple months ago or a month ago, whatever, said, dad, you know what we should do? I said, what? He said, we should buy an airplane. And here's the really sad part. I'm like, yes, we should. How do we work that now? It's for the Lord. It's for his glory, right? (laughs) That's it. Like, let's get an airplane. That's what kids do. That's what kids. So that's, she's the example. How brilliant is this story? She's the antithesis of the Pharisee. She doesn't come demanding. She doesn't come because I washed up. She comes knowing I don't deserve anything. I just want a crumb from your table. And Jesus says, that's it. That's it. I love Mark, man. I'm telling you, I could spend five years in this book. I'm trying to speed through it so we don't get drugged down by just like me. So brilliant. But there's one more story. The second story gives us just as much information about how we're supposed to approach our God. Check this out. And I'll do it quickly. Verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. And the region of the Decapolis can be real important, that region for our next story in chapter eight. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to them, Epaphrathah, that is be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure saying, he has done all things well. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I title this, Lion or Lamb? Lion or Lamb? Remember how chapter seven begins. The Pharisees, the one that believed that God owed them something, come to Jesus with the hand-washing conversation. Jesus has a very strong rebuke of them. That is the lion roaring. The lion roars right then. Jesus is like, I'm not having any of this. He roars at them. Now we have this other story. Verse 32 says, they brought this deaf and mute person to Jesus. I love the theys. I don't know who they are. Maybe it's family, maybe it's friends. But this deaf man, mute man, couldn't get there by himself, right? He'd never heard of Jesus, why? He can't hear, right? He is unable to do anything so that they bring him to Jesus. And so many of you do that. You are the ones that are bringing people to Jesus. We all need theys. 
And then it says, they beg Jesus. Why doesn't the man beg Jesus? Because he can't. He's deaf and mute, right? So he is showing our inability that each of us is unable. We can't do enough. We don't deserve enough. We can't do it. It's the very opposite of the Pharisees who believe by their actions they deserved it. So Jesus takes them aside privately. Why privately? Because this man had probably been a spectacle for his whole life. Mocked, teased, bullied, whatever. And then he spits. Why does Jesus do this spit thing? Hmm. We do funny things with spit today, don't we? What person in here, when you were a kid, you finished eating breakfast, you're trying to head out to the school bus, you got a little jam on your cheek, what did your mom do? Spit in her apron and just scrubbed it off, right? And you smelled that spit all the way to school. You're like, oh man, right? Remember that? We do funny things with spit too. So we, don't, we have an aversion to spit, wasn't there 2,000 years ago. So if you had a meal at someone's house 2,000 years ago, there'd be a giant loaf of bread in the middle, all these little dipping bowls around, and you would tear off a big hunk of that bread, and then you would dip it in one of these bowls, and you would take a bite of that, you know, getting saliva all over it. And if you wanted to, you could double dip and nobody would care. It was a way of just swapping spit. Nobody cared. So we have an aversion to it. They didn't. They actually thought it had medicinal properties. And do you know that spit actually has medicinal properties? It does. In your spit, there is a white blood cell that provides an antiseptic that's found nowhere else in the human body. That you can literally lick your wounds. And if that's all you got, they can make you better. So note self, not so bad. So why does Jesus do this? Why does he take him aside privately? Why does he touch his ears? Why does he spit on his fingers and touch his tongue? Why is he doing this? Here's why. It's sign language. He's deaf and mute. He didn't know what was going on. So Jesus takes him aside privately and speaks a language that only he could understand. I'm going to heal you. I'm gonna heal your ears. I'm gonna heal your mouth. I'm gonna make sure. It's Jesus speaking the language that this man could understand. How good is Jesus? I'll, I'll explain this to you. I'll take you aside so it's not public. But I'm gonna explain in sign language so that you can understand what I'm doing. And then he sighs. The Greek there is literally groans. Why does he groan? When do you sigh? When do you groan? When you read about foster care and what it does to children, you sigh, you groan. When you hear a child tell about how he was bullied, you sigh, you groan. When you hear about a woman who's been battered, you sigh, you groan. When you do a funeral service for a 14-year-old girl, you sigh, you groan. It's empathy. It's you sympathize. It's Jesus showing, man, I know what you've been through. I know how difficult life has been. I empathize. I understand. That's what he's doing. It's, the spit is, it, it's Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus entering into this man's story. I'll be your healing. I'll be your cure. I'll loosen your tongue. I'll heal your ears. I will enter into your story. That's what it is. It's brilliant. The guy that could do nothing, deaf and mute, didn't know of Jesus, couldn't hear of Jesus, couldn't get himself to Jesus. I'll enter your story. I'll hear it. I will heal you. That God didn't send us a message. He sent us himself. I'll enter your story. 
That's the message that Jesus is getting across here. That's the message Mark is trying to paint for us, right? It's theology too. Here's Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. says the same thing in theology. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. He sighs at my defiled tongue. He sighs that I can't hear him correctly. He sighs. He sighs. But one who is in every aspect, one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of washing our hands a bunch, eating the right food, deserving it, grace, like the Syrophoenician woman, like the deaf, mute man, that Jesus meets us where we are at to bring us to where he is. That's the message of the Bible. That's why Jesus says, pay attention to this. This is the message of the Bible. And you understand that you're either gonna get the lion's roar or the lamb's gift. You're gonna get the Pharisees, the lion's roar, or like these two, the lamb's gift based on how we approach him. On our goodness, how great we've been? Or no, how great he is. Like kids asking for an airplane. That's how we're supposed to approach him. That's why every Sunday we come to the table. Because it forces me and it forces us to say, we don't deserve it. We've been invited to have a meal with the king at the king's table. And we know we don't deserve it. We're outsiders. We're defiled. We're deaf, we're mute, we don't deserve it. But wow, because of his grace, we're able to come boldly with confidence and eat a meal with the king. And so Jesus today, as we hold in our hands your broken body. You who, were no, who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. We're Syrophoenician women. We're deaf, mute men. And you came to us, absorbed. We send our sins violently into you on the cross and you absorbed them and said, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. I pray for every heart in here. I pray for the Pharisee inside of me. I pray that today as I partake in your broken body, I would become as a little child confident in my heavenly father approaching your throne of grace receiving help in my time of need for my defiled tongue for my blocked ears for my dog-like tendencies I pray that for every single one of us confident at your table one of your kids. Let's eat together.
and your greatest gift met our deepest need on the cross that you forgave us. That you sigh over our weaknesses. You sympathize with them. Hebrews 4.15. You forgive us of them. And you cleanse our hearts so the source is transformed and changed. And so we bring our bad tongues and deaf ears to you today and pray that you would heal us and send us out with new hearts, renewed spirits, cleansed by your power. Let's drink together. Amen. So if you're new, we sing one final song. When the deaf mute was healed, it said the people couldn't help but proclaim it. When we look at Jesus and we're reminded of Jesus, we should proclaim it. That's what this final song is. Let's proclaim. Praise how good our King is. After that, you can be dismissed, but we always offer prayer and baptism. Prayer, because the Bible says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Because scripture says, that Jesus proclaimed to his disciples, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Cast your cares. He's your burden bearer. Come, be prayed for. Baptism. Baptism does not save you. The grace of Jesus Christ saves you. Nothing, no washing, no hand washing, nothing saves you but the grace of Jesus Christ through faith, not of works. So I be baptized. It's embodying the remembrance of his life, death, and resurrection on your behalf. It's obedience to him as your king because he commands it. And if it's your day to be baptized, we want to join with you. Come right up here. There'll be somebody here that would love to baptize you in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Would you stand for this final song?